0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your
1: host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 245 of the podcast. It is March 15th, 2016. Today's the first of two episodes that I'll post during Patient Safety Awareness Week. My guest here for episode 245 is Dr. Tom Evans, the president and CEO of the Iowa Healthcare Collaborative. I've known Dr. Evans for many years, but I was prompted to do the podcast here uh, based on an editorial that he wrote in the Des Moines Register newspaper. It was titled, Iowa Hospitals Succeed at Keeping Patients Safe. So today we're gonna talk about that editorial. Dr. Evans will uh, get to elaborate on that a bit and we'll learn uh, some of the lessons from the great work that's taking place in Iowa hospitals. So if you want to see a link to the article and learn more about the Iowa Healthcare Collaborative, you can go to org slash 245. Tom, thank you so much uh, for being a guest here on the podcast today. Thanks, Mark. Looking forward to it. So you know, before we get into you know the real you know core of the healthcare improvement work that's taking place in Iowa, uh, can you first introduce yourself and your background, and and maybe weave into that how you got involved in healthcare quality uh, more broadly?
0: Okay. Um, well, uh, my name is Tom Evans. I'm a I'm a physician. I'm a, I'm actually a family doctor and practiced for 13 years and found all kinds of things during that time. It was very frustrating. I kept finding things that. Um, we did when we were trying to practice medicine and whether I was referring to specialists or to hospitals or even trying to get my patients engaged in different ways to do things in different ways, I just found tremendous inefficiency. It was very difficult to try to or very frustrating to me to try to figure out how do we do this better and I kept finding myself asking the question, how do we do this better? Um, It kind of led me to start looking into healthcare quality and I became interested in it. I started to participate in different projects with with the health system I was with and eventually just found myself sucked more and more into administrative medicine and most of the time focused on the whole concept of how do we improve healthcare quality and safety. Um, one thing led to another. I became the chief medical officer for a, a large system in our state and, and then in, 20, um, in 2005 left that job and started the institution I'm running now called the Iowa Healthcare Collaborative and that organization is a provider-led uh, initiative. We work with all of the systems, all of the hospitals, all of the physicians in the state. So think of it as a provider-led initiative to improve quality, patient safety, and cost in Iowa. So that's been, we've been around now between 10 and 11 years uh, driving statewide quality improvement strategies.
1: And in the course of that, are the different hospitals and health systems around the state, do, do they choose to become a member? Is there any involvement with the state of Iowa? I'm just kind of curious hear more a little bit about that structure.
0: Yeah, great, great question. Well, first of all, we, when we started this thing, we really had the concept of a statewide initiative. So who we partnered with, uh, we do not have members uh, what we did is, and <laughs> we don't have members because we didn't want anybody to be able to say they weren't a member, therefore they didn't have to do quality improvement in the state. So what we did is we partnered with the State Hospital Association and we partnered with the State Medical Association. So, um, and, and those two organizations who obviously are member organizations, they're highly incented to make sure that their members are happy, but also we're in a time when healthcare is transforming. So these organizations have significant interest in equipping their members for the future. So um, while those organizations, which are kind of partners with us, focus on advocacy and uh, equipping their members, we have kind of served as a a cross-link between the doctors and the hospitals, but also um, a change agent within the state, a provider-led change agent, for healthcare, uh, defining healthcare quality in our state and advancing that as we work to transform care.
1: Well, great. Um, I want to go back and, and maybe see if you could elaborate a little bit on you know what it, what it was like for you practicing medicine and some of those inefficiencies and difficulties and frustrations for people listening who may only know you know the the perspective of sitting in the in the exam room and waiting for a while not knowing what's going on uh, behind the scenes can can you maybe paint a picture a little bit about what were some of the common things that were frustrating to you as a practicing physician
0: well that's just a great question um you know and especially for your audience, who kind of are really concerned about performance improvement, I, you know, when I was practicing, I guess it, I never really thought about it. I'm talking to folks from the other end of the table here, but, but, but in my situation, you know, you you bring people in. There were frustrations with how do I how do I adequately communicate with my patients? How do I help my patients actually understand what I'm saying? And one topic was the whole concept of health literacy. I could say something, but they didn't get what I was saying. And if they didn't get what I was saying, they wouldn't do what I was asking them to do. And a lot of the time, a lot of physicians or a lot of healthcare will will just kind of say, "Well, those patients are non-compliant." Well, the fact is, it's not always that the patients are non-compliant; it's that the patients aren't equipped to be compliant. Mm. And it's really kind of a it's a uh, kind of an easy way out to say the patients are non-compliant versus building systems to help the patients be more compliant. Uh, so one area of frustration was just with the folks I was working with, with my customers trying to make sure that we together were partnering to get the kind of results we wanted to get. So that's one dimension of frustration. Another dimension of frustration is the whole topic of medication safety and effectiveness. Um, when, when you know, what I would prescribe for someone, but they would see multiple providers so, are we providing, are we, are we prescribing medications that for one person it does this, but then they get another medication and that causes that one to cross react or isn't as effective? And so you ended up with all of these different things that all kind of piled up and it began to decrease the effectiveness of what you were trying to do. Um, not only that, it becomes dangerous because it's one thing to, to not have your medication be effective, but it's another thing to start having cross reactivity. So certain medications are particularly <laughs> excuse me high arm um, that, and, and they're fairly common drugs like insulin insulin that we use to treat our diabetics um, we always use it to try to lower blood sugar but a lot of the time we can if we're over aggressive we drop it too low and people can have uh, they can go unconscious so there, there are problems with that blood thinners another common category uh, if they're too thin, you can give them a stroke. If they're too thick, you can give them a stroke. So how effectively we managed medications was another area of frustration. And then, not to go into too much here, but a third area that just would drive you nuts is care coordination. How well do we get our pa- how, If I send my patient to a specialist, do I get the information back? I send them there to get answers, but how well do we communicate across the system? And often, historically, that process has been abysmal. So um, trying to make sure that we're coordinating the care that patients are receiving at all these different sites effectively. And, you know, I know what we're supposed to be theming around here is is lean, but when you think about it, just with the three areas that I mentioned there, you can see that the whole situation is rife. It's all kinds of performance opportunities that uh, we can improve things on.
1: Yeah, and you know those those issues you you brought up. I mean, I think it goes to show, you know, for people who are working in hospitals, when when you uh, engage physicians and ask them, you know, I, I guess you know, sort of like we're, we're doing this discussion, what what bothered you, Doctor Evans, and um, you know, bring up issues that are important to you, issues that are important to your patients, and. You know, trying to work together on these issues, I think, is more effective than trying to say, "Hey, we're going to go do lean." You know, people might say, "Well, right. well, who cares?" But I want to solve these important issues, and um, you know, issues of, of communication and uh, systems come into play. So, you know, what you said in your first point of, you know, uh, not blaming patients for being non-compliant and understanding what gets in the way of that. I, I see a similar discussion taking place in hospital medicine where the tables get turned on the doctors. And you know, administrators, I think, unfortunately, um, you know, they're too quick to blame the doctors for not complying with some uh, protocol or, or you know, standard way of doing things instead of asking, okay, well, you know, why, what are the barriers? That, that seems like a far more constructive thought process. Uh, that's what I'm you know, happy to hear you describing it that way.
0: Well, by the same token, you know, and I am a physician, but I'm not going to let us off the hook. Um, a lot of the time, um, physicians don't uh, adhere to standard evidence-based practices. They weren't trained that way. Uh, matter of fact, the the whole mindset of a physician is that um, we go out and we get training, and then we 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 every every single patient is a custom build. And while that all sounds great, um, it's almost like we learn how to do it all over again every time. Mm and uh, it actually introduces quite a bit of variability. The, it, it's, it's important for people to know, and, and maybe they already do, but you know, over the last 20 years, we've developed a very impressive body of what's called evidence-based medicine, and it's just basically lean principles. What should we do every single time? So identifying what works and making sure you're doing those and identifying the things that don't work very often and trying to eliminate those from the process. Um, so there's a lot of that going on in medicine today, but often the physician will kind of say, "Well, I wasn't trained that way. Excuse me. I need. To, I, I'm not going to get involved in this process improvement stuff. Excuse me. I need to go see patients." And we we tend to uh, pull away from the process rather than embracing the process.
1: So is some of that changing over time in, in medical education to um, to better embrace? evidence-based sure. medicine without it turning into, you know, I guess, you know, the, the concern or the pushback we often hear, I, I and I totally understand it, if it goes too far in the other direction, now you get quote-unquote cookbook medicine or something that's maybe inappropriately inflexible instead of inappropriately variable. What, what are you seeing um, happen out there?
0: Well, we could go all over on this one, but, you know, the term cookbook medicine was very popular in the 90s, and in the 90s, um, you have to remember what was going on. If our job was to increase the value of care and if value is quality divided by cost, mm-hmm. we didn't really have much with regard to evidence-based medicine that we could objectively measure the quality. So when you started to talk about increasing the value and you don't have much on quality, we, basically value equals one over cost. So, And the insurance companies were the big drivers in the 90s and the managed care days of trying to improve the value, and it was basically, let's send you to a place that's going to be cheaper. Well, the, the physicians began to coin the term, well, that's just cookbook medicine, and by the way, I get sued if that is bad benefit. <laughs> so uh, that that actually was one of the fueling points uh, around the development of evidence-based medicine, the physician community coming up and saying, wait a minute, let's define what quality is. Um, I think that To carry it now, 20 years forward, um, what's interesting is it's not just that the culture is changing, but for the physician community, there's some brand new legislation that's been passed in 2015 that will be changing the physician reimbursement methodology over the next 10 years, and that will be tying physician reimbursement for Medicare directly to quality measures. Uh, so it's going to be a new world, and uh, many physicians, well, most all physicians, uh, literally all physicians in the country, will be um, having their Medicare reimbursement tied to these new uh, quality measures.
1: And you, you said you know twenty years ago it was difficult to measure healthcare quality. Is that still a challenge today, or has there been progress made at least to to make some of these reimbursement incentives be more fair than unfair? Well,
0: let's, let's separate those two pieces. Let's talk about are there quality measures, and then we'll talk about the reimbursement measures and making them fair or not fair. With regard to the quality measures, we've made tremendous progress in the last 20 years with regard to um, the ability to measure quality. Um, first, we had to define it, and once we began to define it, then we had to standardize the definitions so that everybody was calling it the same thing. And then from that point, now that you have the standard metrics for different clinical processes, then you can begin to actually look at, well, what makes these processes better? So, um, and there's a whole series of things that uh, are tracked pretty consistently now across the country, Um, you know, certain things in obstetrics and adverse drug events and pressure ulcers and a lot of things, infections, those are all areas now that we have pretty standard definitions and you can track um, at the hospital level, at the state level, and nationally, are we making progress to improving quality?
1: Great. Well, um, let, let's jump into, I mean, that, that's, that's a rich topic, and, and I feel like we're scratching the surface of, of that. But I, I do want to jump into you know, kind of the thing that prompted us doing the podcast today, some of the quality improvement work that's been going on, which, of course, has some measures associated. Um, can you talk about the, the hospital engagement network, what that is, and, and how um, that group that partnership got involved with some of the the federal cms driven partnership for patients programs if you can kind of introduce that for the listeners
0: sure Um, this is a wonderful you know from what we were just talking about this really kind of plays on that there there is there are evidence-based parameters that everyone pretty much agrees we should do things this way now the problem is getting people to do that um and what's happened in the medical community, is there's it's become pretty much everybody agrees those are the things we should do and those evidence based practices. There's been an evidence matter of fact it's been it's been pushed so much now that CMS has said well there are certain things that we're not going to pay for going forward because you're not doing it right. Case in point, uh, say for hospital care, there are certain infections mm-hmm. that happen to patients. If it was ten years ago people would say, well, that poor patient, they just got that infection. But now we know that there are certain processes that if we adhere to those within the hospital, you can dramatically reduce infections in certain areas. Surgical site infections, um, bloodstream infections, urinary tract infections, those are all areas where we know now how the processes that we use in-house can dictate how high those rates are. That's so well established that CMS has come forward and said, if your rates are above a certain level, that's your problem. We're not going to pay for it. So, um, and, and again, there's a whole list of really patient safety types of areas like infections, falls, bloodstream, uh, 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 pressure ulcers, uh, and even even some obstetrical measures mm-hmm. that um, the feds have actually tied to the Affordable Care Act and said hospitals If you have these kinds of patient safety issues, they're your problem, they're not our problem. Yeah.
1: Well, and and some of the things that were reported in the uh, Des Moines Register article, um, you talking about uh, reducing adverse drug events by ninety nine point nine um, percent reducing pressure ulcers, bed sores in uh, informally yeah. by eighty nine percent central line infections by thirty four percent i mean they, these are you know some very dramatic uh, some very dramatic numbers where do you know where were these um, it, it said here there were one hundred and twenty eight participating hospitals uh, across right. Iowa and two other states were these were those the best results? Were those typical results? No, that's,
0: uh, well, actually, those are our average. That's, that's the total. When you look at our whole network, wow. that's wow. how much we've reduced our baseline. Let me tell the story on that. Um, I mentioned the Affordable Care Act and remember the Affordable Care Act is really an insurance reform bill, though everybody calls it a health care reform bill. Interestingly, in that legislation, there are a whole bunch of things that hospitals will not be paid for in the future, as I would mentioned before, and most of those are patient safety related. Though the bill was enacted in 2010, there were certain things that kicked in between 2012 and 2014 that were already written into the Federal Register to not get paid for so like early elective deliveries or adverse drug events, so those pressure ulcers, as I mentioned, many infections. The interesting thing is if you're now CMS and you're going to quit paying the hospitals for a bunch of stuff, hopefully they're going to learn how to do this differently. So CMS, um, to try to prepare them for a decrease in their revenue, uh, actually put together a program through the Innovation Center uh, at CMS, uh, called a hospital engagement network. And um, my organization was one of the hospital engagement networks. We worked, we worked with 127 hospitals to focus on the things that the hospitals aren't going to get paid for in the future. And basically, heavily focused on performance improvement. Okay, how can we get better so that we can reduce our chances of, you know, not getting paid in the future, basically, the, the financial piece. But it's it's really, this is about performance improvement. Um, so w- those numbers you quoted, we worked with 127 hospitals over a three-year period. We established baselines and then we were able to demonstrate by working, doing performance improvement using kind of PDSA cycles over a three-year period, um, again, we reduced early elective deliveries by ninety-five percent. We reduced adverse drug events in those hospitals by ninety-two percent. We reduced the number of pressure ulcers by eighty-nine percent. And there's a whole plethora of uh, other measures that we were able to improve.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, um, how much of this do you think was, um, you know, lean methods, including PDSA? How much of it comes down to? you know, leadership and culture and just that belief, that shift that goes from, well, these things are bound to happen to realizing, well, no, actually a lot of this is very preventable. Let's get to work.
0: Well, you you hit the nail on the head. First of all, this this is not bound to happen. This is not an education program. This was about execution. Um, we we use the, the metaphor with our hospitals quite a bit that there are three ways to change things. You can use the academic model. Whose job it is to go out and just find truth. And you know you standard every, standardize everything and you write an article about it. The education model, which is to spread truth, and you may I mean spreading truth, it's great to tell people what to do, but how often does that really work at changing things? And you know that's why in healthcare it takes 17 years mm-hmm. from the time we find a new thing to the time it's imp- implemented a standard practice. Our process was the third model, the execution model and it was basically to do truth. Mm. If we know that we have evidence-based parameters that we should be doing, what we did is we asked hospitals to begin to identify a standard set of measures, measure them on a monthly basis, and then use local PDSA cycles uh, in four- to six-month periods to try to continue to raise the bar. So this was locally applied, in-your-face performance improvement that your listeners are basically doing on a daily basis. Um, The other, just one other point there is you asked, or you kind of noted about leadership. Um, We had a heavy engagement with our leadership. Um, And we we challenged leadership not only with regard to their organization's um, numbers, but we challenged leadership to understand what needed to be done and then remove the barriers so that people could get about the business of improving, so we had a heavy focus on leadership as well
1: yeah well that that's great and um I was happy to see those results. Happy to hear about um how uh, organizations in Iowa and a few other adjoining states are are making great progress there so um I want to thank you, Tom, uh, again, for the listeners. I guess has been Dr. Tom Evans from the Iowa Healthcare Collaborative. Um, their website is ihconline.org. And, uh, Tom, I'll give the floor back to you the one last time if there are any sort of final thoughts you might want to wrap up with.
0: Well, thanks, Mark, and I, I appreciate you asking me to come today. I, I guess the only thing I'd close with is this is the right thing to do. And uh, though sometimes it feels like we're all Don Quixote and we're jousting with windmills with regard to performance improvement, um, this is the right thing to do. Interestingly, it's no longer just, oh, wouldn't it be great if someday if it would happen? Because healthcare transformation, as we move from a volume-based to a value-based healthcare system, the momentum is building and it's actually moving faster. So I just would encourage the people who are on the line, um, you're doing the right thing. And um, you are a precious resource to your organizations. Keep up the
1: good work. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Tom. Thanks so much for uh, being a guest here with us today. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit
0: www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or
1: comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.